Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From the Apostrophe Podcast Network. Hello, everybody. You're surviving life with Les Stroud. In the world of bushcraft and survival skills, as well as primitive technology, women are sorely underrepresented. This happens to be the antithesis of the reality of what is needed in a wilderness survival situation or any other kind of survival, really. Tribes, cultures, societies, and any group that has ever existed since the dawn of man... I'm, I mean, of mankind... I mean, the dawn of all of us, surviving and indeed thriving is impossible without both sexes. Yet the depiction of survival on TV has morphed from what I originally sought out to show and teach in Survivor Man, something that any one of us can do, into a ridiculous comic book expression of lame-ass machismo and testosterone. For a number of years, I would have discussions with the network executives on the development of a Survivor Woman series. And do you know what their answer always was? Women don't rate on survival TV. In all my years of teaching survival, long before producing Survivor Man, it was always the women in a hardcore survival course that did better than the men. Now that's not what this podcast is about, women in survival. But I'm going there because my guest is a woman and she is extremely well-versed in bushcraft and survival and primitive technology skill sets, so much so that she wrote her PhD thesis on the subject matter. I had never met nor even heard of Lisa Fenton when I went to speak at the Bushcraft Symposium. But over in the UK, she had been just as thick into bushcraft skills as anybody anywhere. She apprenticed under Ray Mears, ran her own company, and continues to this day to teach and speak on the subject of survival skills from all eras. And to my great delight, with her academic background, she is able to theorize about primitive technology and earth skills by leaning on the writings of Aristotle, Socrates, and in one case even, Karl Marx. To set the stage as simple, Lisa and I walked down to the very same field I interviewed survival legend Desert Dave Halliday. Check out that podcast if you haven't already. It's truly inspiring. We sat down in the grass amongst the bees and butterflies, so you'll hear the wind pick up now and then in the microphones. These are the words of Lisa Fenton. And I'd be like, every birthday, what do you want? I want a knife. Don't be stupid. We're not going to get you a knife. And, And they never would. And even on my 18th, what do you want for your birthday? A knife. I've been saying this for years, you know. And my sister actually bought me a knife on my 18th as a bit of a a joke, you know, because I could buy my own knife by then. Lately I've been wondering why 
finding it so easy to cry Blue on my soul and it's just so hard to get by are women as tough as men? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm saying it's not about being as tough as or what have you. It's about, in many other societies, there are gendered roles. There's not this idea that men's roles are more important than women's roles. And, you know, I'm not saying we should all fit roles, but this is just how it is in a lot of indigenous communities. You know, the roles are divided, but they're just not considered more important or less important. They're just equally respected and equally needed. Oh my lord, another blue note chord Strumming a song My heart's got blues on its mind I don't really understand PhDs, I think is my problem because I'll hear theses uh, being written about things. That, are you allowed to do that? So, so what was your thesis about? So the thesis, the title was um, Bushcraft and Indigenous Knowledge transformations of a concept in the modern world. So it was basically looking at the relationship between bushcraft and indigenous knowledge. But in order to do that, I, you know, I had two big concepts and one was bushcraft and the other was indigenous knowledge. Um, so it was a pretty intimidating prospect. And I wasn't about to go out, I mean, it, it was in the anthropology department, but I wasn't about to go out and live with indigenous peoples. So that side of it had to come from other scholars and what they had written. And so I was looking at the bushcraft part of the concept and thinking, oh, hell, you know, there's nothing has been written about this mm -hmm. academically at all. I'm going to have to sort of start from scratch. And where do I start? And I need to start with defining it as often. And, oh, God, you know, no one wants the job of defining this. So in order to do that, I need to look at the history and look at really where, where its deep roots are and then the more modern history. For better description, we're talking about hands on wood, making fire with twigs, uh, using arrows and spears to hunt. Like, wh why is this of interest to you? Of interest to me or interest to academia? Well, it has to be interest to you for you to even get into, uh -huh. you know, I mean, unless you, unless you were forced to do it. Ah, I see. Well, so I, um, I'd always been interested in this stuff. Why? Um, I... My story is similar, actually, to one that Ray Mears wrote in his autobiography. And I was surprised to read it because I didn't realise that it was a similar thing. Where The first thing I remember about that was at school, at primary school, and learning about Stone Age Man. And asking the teachers, you know, not just, OK, they wore animal skins, but how? Like, what, how did... You know, because if you put, how do you catch the animal? And then if you put an animal skin on, that's going to be pretty grim, OK? So... You know, how did they do this? And of course, primary school teachers can't answer those questions. And, and it just stuck with me, these questions of, of, I don't quite know why, but I've always been really drawn to how do we as humans live in tune with the natural environment? It wasn't an easy question to answer because pre-internet, there was very little information. You had to really dig around secondhand bookshops to, to get bits of information about these processes. What are the processes? Let me interrupt um, you. When you say in tune with the natural environment. But as a little girl, as a young girl, were you thinking in tune with the natural environment or were you thinking, God, that, look, that just seems so cool? I was thinking both. That oh. seemed so cool, but it was also about how do you live in the natural world? Like, I, I always wanted to run away. <laughs> so it wasn't that my childhood was terrible. I grew up in quite an urban environment and I was just really drawn to the natural world. And so 
I don't know if it was books I was reading, you know, Famous Five type stuff, but I wanted to run away and live in, the, in nature. And I can remember my dad used to take us to this sort of wooded park where there was a tree with a hollow in it. And I used to take stuff and stash it there for the time when I was going to run away and you know, get my supplies from mm. this hollow. So that there was just something in me that was drawn to getting out of an urban an- landscape and into a natural landscape. There was a yearning there. And, and so the, this primitive where. technology, these primitive people is like, that looks like a route. Yeah. Right? That, a way. And, and as I got older into teens, anything that had that kind of tribally feel to it, would really draw me. So they might be music, it might be, it, it might be films, you know, so media uh, really inspired me. Because in an urban environment, that's what you've got, is media really to inspire you. So, that, that's something that I've touched on a lot. I said, look, you know, you, you, the cliche of what people want to hear about my backdrop is that I was raised by wolves and, you know, the wolves changed my diaper and I was left in the bush alone, <laughs> yeah. like, like Mowgli, you know? Yeah. And the reality is I was watching television in the 1970s on the West End suburb of Toronto. Yeah, yeah. Kaboom. Exactly. Right? Yeah. You know, there were things like Little House on the Prairie and Cowboys and Indians and there's these people out in big landscapes and that was... That just spoke to me. Even I can remember as a little girl when people used to say, what do you want to do when you get older? And I used to say, "Uh, I'm going to marry a farmer. Because in my little head, that was the only way I was going to get out of an urban landscape and into a natural landscape. And I never married a farmer. (laughs) (laughs) Or anyone else for that matter. (laughs) Well, you you are definitely on the outside of... I mean, everybody else is doing that normal thing, whatever they do in this urban environment, in the suburban environment, and you're thinking cavemen. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Um, There's not a lot of us out there. Not a lot of cavemen out there. And you definitely... I was commenting yesterday, even when I was partying with my teenage buddies and we were drinking and we were doing all the things we do. I realized sometime later when my buddy goes, do you remember we used to call you Yule Gibbons? I'm like, that's right. Even when I was 16 years old, they called me Yule Gibbons, which meant there was a side freak show of yeah. me that, that, that was yeah. just me going, you know, walk along with a, with a Molson X in my hand going, hey guys, do you know we can eat these dandelions? And uh, yeah. Followed by, shut up, Stroud. <laughs> yeah, so that, that makes me think of a couple of things. My nickname was Commando <laughs> as a 10-year-old. Um, because, you know, when we would play runouts or anything, I just used to love the, it was a bit of woodland and we used to go play runouts and creeping up on each other. And I was a real Tom boy all my friends were guys and we used to climb trees and so on so yeah I, I, I had that similar this, this is the common background that I, th- I think people don't you know realize you know that none of us were raised by wolves yeah none of us grew up in the forest you know we yeah. mostly had books and tv and dreams and outers clubs maybe at school you uh-huh. know? so I didn't even have that no, so, I didn't either. No, you're describing... Yeah. I think what you're describing is actually quite common, yeah, more common. Yeah, it's quite normal. Yeah. And I think the other thing was, and, a, and it's a commonality as well, is Lofty Wiseman's The SAS Survival Handbook. So I, I got that when I was about 10 or 11, something yeah. like that. And then I always wanted a knife. And, you know, my parents were, were not... They couldn't tell you an oak tree from an ash tree. I mean, my dad loves being out in nature, but he didn't know anything about it. And I'd be like, every birthday, what do you want? I want a knife. Don't be stupid, we're not going to get you a knife. And, and they never would. And even on my 18th, what do you want for your birthday? A knife. I've been saying this for years, you know. And my sister actually bought me a knife on my 18th as a bit of a, a joke, you know, because I could buy my own knife by then. 
But it's just interesting that there was that, you know, I need a knife in order, because I was reading this book as a 10-year-old, and I think, I can't do any of this because I haven't got a knife. Mm. And so I felt really genuinely constrained yeah. of... That's very interesting, the symbolism of the knife, knife. as, the, as the entrance key yeah. into this Absolutely. world. I, I think I can remember feeling that. Now, I had access to knives and through fishing with my father, you know, and just cheap and terrible little fold-out knives. But just the same, I do remember how they felt. I remember they were like this little, like, I was going to say a sense of power, but really a key. It's a key, you're right, yeah. And, and in my thesis, actually, one of my case studies was around the use of the knife and the relationship that we, that bushcrafters, survival, you know, this domain has with the knife and its symbolism of self-sufficiency, freedom, skill. You know, I remember going to a, a big outdoor show in Birmingham, NEC Birmingham, and it must have been something like 2006, and it was when the bushcraft scene, if you like, suddenly kind of mushroomed. And I was there with Land Rover and I was doing some stuff for them. But suddenly there was, and I used to go fairly regularly, and so, but suddenly this year there was guys wearing green with knives on their belts, like all over the place, you know, so you could spot bushcrafters all over the place. And I think, why are these guys wearing knives? This, this is Birmingham, NEC, you know? It's not even legal. And when I came to write my PhD, that kind of stuck with me, that, that thought of, yeah, why were they wearing knives? Mm. Because there is actually going to be a reason, because it wasn't just one or two. Mm -hmm. And it's like, because that's their identity, that's, and the symbolism to this other life, this other freedom, this mm. outside of the structured, built environment. Well, um, I mean, on a tangent thought, indeed, depending on what environment you're going to, you alter the knife you take. Yeah. As well as the fire starting equipment if you're going to go primitive anyway. But yeah, you do. Like if I go to the jungle, I have a machete. If I yeah. go to Canada, I have an axe. Yeah. And certainly, and even if, if I'm going to a place where I think I'm going to be using my knife for digging, I have a knife that's good for digging versus carving. Yeah. So you do start to different. have different keys after a while. To different ecologies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's, it is, that is the thing. The knife is a symbol of the relationship between you and the ecology, the environment that you're in. And it's, it's a symbol of the skill that you have to unlock the affordances in that landscape. Mm -hmm. you know, without that knife, it's very just not impossible. And when we get into primitive technology, of course, you need to first make the knife. <laughs> so it's not impossible, but it becomes so difficult if well, you're not I, expertly I, skilled. <laughs> I think for, for anyone listening too, is that you understand there's an image that pops up in everybody's brain when you say a knife or make a knife. But making a knife might mean sharpening a bone into a blade. It might mean flint napping seven different types of stone into yep. a blade, each one with its own. So it's not just Make a knife. No, and finding the stone, and where do you get the bone from? You know, it's it's a long, long, drawn-out process, even mm. if and you're quite you have skilled. The, do you have the, the standing stone to, to carve the yeah, bone exactly. in the first place? Yeah. And, and it takes ages. Oh <laughs> I, I've God. done it as well, and it takes a long time. I, I'll tell you a tangent <laughs> story. I spent uh, a couple of days pecking a hole <laughs> in what was the perfect, from my hand, the perfect bearing block for my fire bow. <laughs> and one day I lost it. I left it on a, on a river bed of stones and I, we were filming some thing. This is long before Survivor Man, but I was filming some interview about survival and, and I just happened to put it down. And when I left, I, I didn't pick it up. And to this oh. day, I, I've never made you one sense. still feel bereft. <laughs> no, now, now I'm like, just give me a, a bone, just give me a piece of wood. I, yeah. I just like, I don't, 
I, Never I, putting that much oh energy into something. It took I actually stole the bearing block from my ex-wife when, when we split up because I had gotten her one of rock that was in, had a natural hole in it. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, when we split up, I kept it. So oh, like, God. It's funny things like, and that was important to me. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Got my bearing block. You know? yeah. I'm tempted to make a quick leap from your childhood into your thesis, but is there a leap there or is it a kind of like I was there and then I ended up there or is, is there a trans, transition? There, well, there's a, there's a whole lot, I suppose. But So I, I went to art college and I met my partner, who is not my partner now, but my partner for the next 23 years. And together we set up, he was similarly interested in the same kinds of things. Um, and then we set up a business called Woodsmoke. And so that was another whole big journey. So we would, well, actually first we worked for Ray Mears for um, four years. So I apprenticed in the UK, didn't get to follow him all around the world. But um. yeah. And apprenticing, I mean, we've been here, at, we're at the Bushcraft Symposium and we're, we're, we're talking with all these different people and, and we know there are young people listening. The apprenticing mode, I feel like these, I'm sorry, this is a tangent, but I feel like sometimes that apprenticing mode is being missed. People are going from reading Morris Cochancy's book to teaching. Yeah, yeah. When apprenticing is vital. It's absolutely vital. And and actually, you know, when we ran Woodsmoke and we would have apprentices come in, it was generally three years before they could run the basic week-long course. Because there's a lot to know, as you know. And you need to be, Ray used to impress this on us, that you need to be teaching you know, 10% of your capacity. Most people will teach sort of 90%. So there's not so much of a gap between the teacher and the learner. And you know, he, was, he was impressing that we should have a whole load of knowledge before we start teaching the basics. Mm-hmm. So that, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a much bigger gap between the people coming in and the knowledge that you're holding. I would agree with that. I'm, I'm thinking it's analogous to me to say when I was instructing as an outdoor adventure guide, the survival part was like a small tidbit of what I would be teaching them. And it was actually very fun to throw it in along the side. Like, And I would be the only guide who knew what you could do with a violet or a dandelion, yeah. you know? And, and yeah. that gave me so many places to go. I remember I, I made it a mandate of my own that if I'm going to be a good outdoor adventure guide, I'm going to, I'm going to have a great breadth of skills. And with yeah. the exception of rock climbing, I, I did do that. Yeah. So I agree with what he says. It's really yeah. interesting. I do. And, you know, and, and Ray was, um, he wasn't easy on us. And these days... It's harder to be hard on people, if you know what I mean. So in a way, it was a fairly old school apprentice. He encouraged us to find out stuff for ourselves, give us principles and not necessarily the answers, which would frustrate the hell out of us sometimes. It's like, because you know he knows and you can't work it out why this hand drill won't work or why this won't work. And it'd just be like, nope, you just need a longer time to go and play with it and figure it out. So we weren't given the answers, but we were given very in a way, a lot of structure. And at that time, there was actually nowhere else really to, to learn from, and it was pre-internet in the, in the pre- anyway, yeah. as well, yeah. yeah. So, um, in the UK, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, was, there was definitely stuff going on in the States yeah. and, and, in, and in Canada. Yeah. So then, yeah, then take me on the journey from the 23 years and to where you find yourself doing a thesis on, on this kind of thing. Okay, so, um, so I ran, co-ran Woodsmoke for, uh, well, it... it yeah, about 18 years in total. And Woodsmoke became well-known. It, it was there sort of at the beginning of the internet, if you like. So we were one of the early bushcraft companies. So in a way, we were lucky that 
we, we were, because later on it would have been quite difficult as it became more popular. But So we were there and we ran stuff in the UK, but we were also very, very keen to put skills in context all the time. Mm -hmm. So we always tried to do overseas expeditions and push ourselves. And I mean, Woodsmoke's a massive journey of its own. You know, we met amazing people. We did a lot of winter stuff with Garrett and Alexandra Conover, learned so much from those guys. That's where I met uh, David Westcott was actually uh, with with, with uh, the Conovers oh, at, really? the, at their winter, oh, their just winter stuff. Yeah. Wonderful people. And that was a real pleasure. Uh, we did a lot of stuff in Namibia with a village of San Bushman. Um, and, you know, most years we would go out there in some capacity. We did some jungle stuff. You know, did you ever do a trance dance? For real? No, no. no. Okay. I know I was never involved in a trance dance, mm, no. Okay. The shaman gal, he... You say that name with a click, but I can't remember which click. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Debbie. Debbie. yeah. He would often do these trance dances. And actually, later on, Werner, who was a guide that we met out there right at the beginning of this journey with the Sam Bushman, he once took the Sam down to the more down to the south in Namibia to... He took them on tour, like a tourist tour, mm -hmm. to see Namibia. And he took them to where the white ladies at Brantberg and the the rock art, the white lady. And Gal said, uh, as soon as he saw it, he said, I, I know that lady. Mm. I see her when I do my trance dance. And I thought that was just amazing. They've got anthropologists and archaeologists discussing what this white lady is and what it means. And, and yeah. I did do the trance dances and both versions, by the way, as well, because there was a version that was really incredible and all-encompassing, and then there was a tourism version. Yeah, and that's what happens, yeah. That is what happens, and that's why I think your thesis is so interesting, because there almost is a kind of a touristic way that we look at primitive men yes. and women yeah. and skills, yeah. and uh, and then there's <laughs> the real way, you know, what really happened. Well, this I think this is where it does get interesting in, in the thesis, and this was a difficult thing to deal with and try and differentiate between how much of it is essentially recreation and tourism and how much of it is an exchange of practice. And I think that depends on the practitioner. I think, mm -hmm. you know, some people in the subject are going in there and they're forming the relationships with people enough to have a, a real authentic exchange of practice. But at the same time, there's an awful lot of tourism. I mean, you could say that sort of armchair survivalism, that's a form of tourism, you know. There's a, there's a lot of tourism in the subject. You mm -hmm. know, people who want to focus on what knife they've got rather than going into the context in which they need to use a knife. And, and whilst it's important, as we discussed earlier, to be sensible and say which knife is going to enable me to form that relationship with the natural world that I need to make in order to live comfortably in it, there's a difference between that and sort of fetishizing knives and tools in general. And this sort of anxious, have I got the right knife and have I, has it got the right blade and is the tang right? And all that. there's a point at which it's kind of irrelevant. You know, there's a point at which something will do. It, it's a knife and mm -hmm. it's sharp enough. And, and actually some of the best craftspeople I know are often using blunt knives um, because the more skill they have, the more their body just knows the movements they need to make. And the skill isn't actually, actually in the sharpness of the blade, but it's in their bodies and mm. how they wield that blade. I absolutely hear and feel what you're saying because I, I'm not a craftsman. And 
I have no interest in talking about knives all day. Yeah. I, you know, um, branding and blade combinations. And I know that uh, if there's a lot of high carbon element, I can sharpen it easier. Yeah. I, know, I know that. Yeah. I know if it's all stainless steel, it's really hard to sharpen. Yeah. So I'll give it to someone to sharpen it. You know? There is that difference between the fetishizing of gear and what you're supposed to be using the gear for. But more importantly, what it means to use the gear for these different skills. Yeah. You know, what's the motivation for using a fire bow? And primitive yeah. technology, primitive peoples, their motivations were not touristic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. needed a fire. Yeah. It's living. From my debut album, this is my song, Blue Soul. One, two, three. I've been wondering why I'm finding it so easy to cry Blue on my soul and it's just so hard to get by Oh my lord, it's a blue note chord It's drumming a song My heart's got blues on its mind Wearing off the shoes on my feet Smile at everyone that I meet Blue on the souls and the tears I feel in the streets Oh my lord, it's a blue no chord Strum a song, my heart's got blues on its mind
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're surviving life with Les Stroud. I did talk about yesterday in the presentation about this issue of technology versus technique. Um, mm. Please do, yeah. And um, there's an anthropologist I really like called Tim Ingold. Um, I mean, he's, he's a globally known anthropologist. And, and he uses this distinction to try to talk about the internalization of skill and how important it is. And, and he uses the analogy of the Sami reindeer herders with their lassoes versus a food processor. And what he's saying is that we see, us Westerners, will often see or judge people by the sophistication of their technology. We'll judge cultures by the sophistication of their technology. The reindeer man with his lasso, this is pretty simple, in quotes, primitive kind mm. of culture. Um, Even savages. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and yet, the amount of skill and knowledge it takes to take some simple technology like a rope or in the case of the Aboriginals, maybe an atlatl spear throw or something like that, is built up over a lifetime, over years and years and years. And if that rope breaks, it's no problem. You know, it's a simple technology. It's easily fixed. All the knowledge and skill to fix that is within the person. Mm-hmm. They don't need to go anywhere else. The food processor, on the other hand, it takes about 30 seconds to work out how to use it, uh, maybe a bit longer if it's me. And um, you just need to learn to press a button. Simple to use, sophisticated in its technology, but if it breaks, there's nothing most people are going to be able to do Mm. about it. And so what he was moving towards, the ideas he was moving towards, is that as technology becomes, it's not a matter of sophistication and complexity, it's a matter of externalizing skill. So the reindeer man with the lasso, all his skills are within him, and it speaks completely to Moore's carry less by knowing more, that little phrase, mm-hmm. is about the internalization of skill and the externalization of technology, which is reversing what's happening to everyone. Well, and I'll go further with this. I think that it also plays into community and relationships because, yeah. for example, with that analogy, the problem is that as generalists, we're not specialists in anything. And I was making this point that with a community, yeah, I can't make snowshoes, but he can. Yep. He can't fish, but I can. Yeah. And that's just one exchange amongst a million exchanges that might occur in a lifetime. Yep. 
as you were saying that, I was also thinking about gender relations. And I was talking to someone the other day, and, and the media in the past have asked me, um, are women as tough as women? Blah, blah, blah. And I was saying, it's not about being as tough as or what have you. It's about, in many other societies, there are gendered roles. There's not this idea that men's roles are more important than women's roles. And, you know, I'm not saying we should all fit roles, but this is just how it is in a lot of indigenous communities. You know, the roles are divided, but they're just not considered more important or less important. They're just equally respected and equally needed because mm. when you're, if you're an Inuit and you're going out in your kayak and as a guy, you're probably the hunter, but you wouldn't survive unless the skill of the women in tanning the hides and sewing the clothing for that mm -hmm. was bomb-proof, waterproof, what have you. They're just considered equal, and I don't know if I'm sort of setting myself up. No, you're, I think you're going, it's very poignant because the equality in many ways resides within the desire, with what is needed. That's, you know, we all have the equal need yeah. to walk on top of snow with snowshoes, to eat mm -hmm. some food, uh, to have clothing that's sewn. So the need is equal, but the skill levels is going to vary widely. It just so happens that a tall person can do things that a short person can't exactly, do, and a yeah. short person can do yeah. things that a tall person can't yeah. do, or at least can do them more efficiently, yeah. within more time, better, and save all of us some yeah. trouble. Yep. And therefore, a, a woman can do things better than a man can do, but that doesn't mean the man can't do them. No, and the just, man can do things better than a woman, yeah. but doesn't mean a woman can't do them. Yep. It's just that in its time of equal need, yeah. which do we want? If there's lots of time on our hands, it doesn't matter. So I'll sew my own mukluks, thank yeah. you. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but if if we need to eat really quickly, and you're my wife, and I'm, you just know I'm better at the shot, or I can carry the whole deer home myself because I'm bigger and stronger and have that yeah. muscular structure. Yeah. Then give that Why job to me. Right. <laughs> yeah. Give the job to me. And that's not sexist. That's and not, No, it's not saying you know. that that's a better job or that makes you exactly. better. It's just it's a different... Difference isn't hierarchical. Mm -hmm. It's just different. And I think that's where it gets tripped up sometimes. And when media have asked me these questions before as well, it's like, well, equally, a young, fit, strong woman is clearly going to be better at going and carrying that deer than an elderly man who mm -hmm. has perhaps always had a small bone structure. Um, so there's all sorts of stuff in there, isn't there? About Yeah, and so, um, you know, what, is the man supposed to feel uh, gilded because a woman brought yeah. home the meat? No. Yeah. It's going to be... It's need. <laughs> yeah, he's going to feel uh, uh, grateful is what he's go going to feel. Yeah. And that's the thing, it's very convoluted in, in an urban environment, in our modern society. Survival is not so convoluted out here. Yes, yeah. You know, the, it's more immediate, it's more obvious, it's not abstracted, it's, you, you're seeing it enacted in front of you mm -hmm. all of the time. Um, and that makes it, I don't know, just sort of applied real upfront and decisions need to be made. And Something that I kind of discovered, and I, I, I love your, your feedback on this, is um, the art of mm -hmm. primitive art. And my very uneducated uh, personal thought on this is that what I've seen is if you go to a place like Northern Quebec, there's no art. And I've survived in Northern Quebec. It's a brutally tough experience. It is hard survival to survive in the middle of the Labradorian forest or Northern Quebec, bug season, cold weather. 
Then you go over to the west coast of Canada and there's these beautiful totem poles and arts, uh-huh. art objects. And why? Well, they're more artistic. No, they had more time. Yeah. Like in Labrador and Quebec, you are constantly Huffing surviving. Survive, yeah. On the west coast of Canada, you're you gathering clams. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this brings me to something else I talked about in my presentation, which is a concept that an eco-psychologist or environmental psychologist, James Gibson, came up with in, I think it was the 80s, it may have been 70s, called affordances. And what he was looking at, and he was saying that the way we perceive, he was all about perception of environment, and the way we perceive our environment, built environment, natural environment, whatever, isn't just about light, colour, planes. It's about possibility in the landscape or in the environment. So, and what he was saying was an environment affords us certain possibilities. In order to access those possibilities, it depends on what skill we have. So somebody good in a canoe, which I'm all right, I'm not particularly, a river could afford Paul Kirtley to canoe down it, but not me. It affords the possibility of being travelled down and canoed down, but you've got to have the skill to, to do that. And so I really like that concept because it's relational. It points in both directions. It points both to the ecology and it points to the individual, the agent within it, Mm -hmm. and that relationship between the two. And I think bushcraft is all about that. I remember seeing uh, one of Mears' programs a long time ago, and he was in the Arctic, or subarctic, but in an Arctic-type environment with the Inuit, and he was saying... um, to a Westerner, this place is bleak and inhospitable. And he wasn't saying it was bleak, but he was just saying to our Western eyes, it's bleak and inhospitable. But to the Inuit, they live here. And I just thought that's exactly ties in with this idea of affordances. To the unskilled, you're going to die there. Mm-hmm. To the skilled, it could be a flourishing culture and home. And I guess what you're saying is in the first, in Labrador, where there's this fight for survival, it's not affording them art because the circumstances and conditions and, you know, weather, materials, whatever it is, it just doesn't afford them the possibility of being able to get to that point of sitting and carving carving stuff. Yeah, whereas... In the West Coast, the affordances were richer, perhaps, in the environment. And so, it was easier. It was yeah. literally just an easier environment. Yeah. You, you could gather yeah. willy-nilly. Yeah. The tide's out. Let's go gather some clams. And I think that's what happens. You know, as soon as there is extra time, shall we say, people do. They start elaborating their creative... Juices, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. And, and again, that... That kind of reminds me of something else I was talking about in the presentation. I was talking about connection to the environment, which I think you touched on in your presentation as well. And I was saying in my thesis, I was using Karl Marx, and, um, you know, without getting into communism and politics and what have you, but there was a time of his, a slice of his writing in 1844 in the philosophical manuscripts. He talks about alienation from the environment, and he talks about it in relation to the rise of industrial capitalism and what he's saying is that um, it's difficult because it's translated from German so some of the translations are a bit odd but he was saying that industrialization fragments man's experiences man as in people's and he was saying he was philosophizing that our essential human essence is to produce creatively and to produce the whole of something and so as soon as you start fragmenting that and disrupting that people suffer, they become degraded as humans because they're not doing what they're naturally meant to do. And so he said the industrial process alienates, it was his theory of alienation, Mm -hmm. it alienates 
people from themselves, from their essential human essence, is what he called it. Mm -hmm. And it also alienates them from the natural world mm -hmm. because they're no longer able to express free creative uh, productivity. Yeah. And that's actually, as you're saying that, I'm thinking somewhere along the lines, because this is an overriding sort of philosophical concept that is, is bouncing around all over the place about this connecting to land and what it enables us to do and yeah. the purpose of our, our journey as human beings and so on. Yeah. And I think somewhere along the line, we have to kind of actually define, what do you mean creative? Mm -hmm. I'm not a creative person. There are human beings that are not creative. Or so they think, think yeah. <laughs> right? They are creative. They just don't paint paintings. Yes. They don't write music. Yeah, which is you know? a very Western idea of Creativity. creative. Yeah. In connecting to the earth, you do open up this, this opportunity of this portal to your own self to be creative in your way, yeah. you know? And, and, and in a way, he's also saying... Um, so so that, that concept always reminds me of running courses in the UK, and people would come and chop wood all week. And at the end of the week, obviously they did lots of other things, but as a background activity, people were always cutting and chopping wood. By the end of the week, you know, so often we had the comment of, God, you know, this has been great, but I came here for a holiday and I've worked harder than I would ever work at home. But it feels great because it was the kind of work they were doing. The kind of work they were doing is what Marx was talking about. They're chopping wood. This is a creative, this is what he meant by free, conscious, creative activity. Chopping wood is that, mm -hmm. you know. You're chopping wood, you're seeing the direct rewards for your efforts, for you and your community. And it feels inherently good in people. This is something I saw over and over again. This is why we have the weekend warriors. Yeah. You know, the, a weekend warrior is the opportunity for city dwellers working in a cubicle all week long yeah. to get out and feel human again. Yes, exactly. And, and they take <laughs> real great passion in chopping the firewood. And, yeah. You know, or going fishing with their kids in the morning in the rain, or yep. or what or what have you. It's just there's a passion that gets to because and um, because they're owning it again. They're owning their their own humanness again, and they're doing it for themselves and their family, their kid, their whatever it is as well. Mm -hmm. It's stuff that you know there's an immediacy too, but. I don't know. Yeah, it, I think it is quite a powerful thing underlying this. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone would consciously think I'm doing this for this reason. But when you start to pick it apart. And that's exactly what we do in part two of my chat with Lisa Fenton. She goes deep into the real deal of what outdoor skills and bushcraft do for us all. An academic approach to the subjects of bushcraft and survival and primitive technology is an absolutely fascinating way to dig deeper and go beyond just starting a fire or building a shelter. Until speaking with Lisa, I hadn't really put that much thought into this reality. And yet once she breaks it down, in part two, coming up next, it all starts to make such sense to the much larger picture of life and survival, and indeed thriving rather than surviving. I started out this podcast talking about women in survival. A true story here. I was leading a group into the forest for a weekend survival experience in the days long before Survivor Man hit TV screens as a small ploy to throw a little confusion into the scenario. While still at our cars and in the parking lot at the end of a long dirt road in a remote area of forest, I said, okay, now everyone put your machete and your rain ponchos back in the car. We're going in without them. At that command, the women in the group immediately and without hesitation did so and headed off into the woods. It was only the men that bitched and complained about it. And in one case, 
One of the men said, right, thank you, and got in his car and drove home. I'm sure my engineer, Keith Ullman, would never get in his car and drive away from a challenge like that. Would you, Keith? 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 I'm a proud member of the Apostrophe Podcast Network, which is thankfully and predominantly run by women. You never stood a chance, Terry. Stick around, everyone. We'll figure this all out together. Both women and men. Oh, wait, hang on. My new series, Wild Harvest, is airing now on American Public Television. Check to see which station's signal reaches your area. And that includes, by the way, Canada. It's all about local foraging. I take you out and teach you what you can gather for a wild edible feast. A feast prepared by a five-star chef, Paul Rogalski. As well, head over to my YouTube channel, Survivor Man Les Stroud, where I'm uploading tons of free content weekly for you to enjoy including Archive, Survivor Man, Survivor Man Bigfoot, Director's Commentaries, and new music just to mention a bit of what's there. The secret, by the way, is to click on the playlists. Lastly, and in time for Christmas, the second printing of my 20th anniversary film collection, featuring 76 films, is available through my website, lesstroud.ca. Okay, thanks. Go ahead. What are you waiting for? Click on subscribe and then click on something else. Or, go be productive.